How does a vacation sound right about now to you? I mean, how would you like to soak up the sun on a tropical beach or embark on a journey to a self-discovery of yourself backpacking through a foreign country? You know, vacations and travel allow people a brief respite from everyday lives while putting fun and new memories and excitement ahead of work and other responsibilities. By traveling to distant countries, new cities, and exploring new areas, people tend to enhance their close relationships and sometimes even make new ones. In fact, if you didn't know, I actually met my wife 13 and a half years ago on vacation on a cruise ship. That's not a sermon illustration, that's a fact, but that's not a plug for getting a cruise ship lined up next year to find a spouse. In case you didn't already know this, these urges and motivations for travel are highly researched by tourists and marketing managers who seek to attract visitors to their destinations. In fact, two researchers conducted a 15-year study exploring some of the psychological needs, as they framed it, that were satisfied by leisure activities, such as tourism and travel. Uh, These would include the following. Novelty. Belongingness. Sensual enjoyment. Service. Cognitive stimulation. Creativity. Self-expression. Relaxation and a longing to satisfy urges for escape. After much trial and error, general marketing principles note that the more emotionally involved a consumer is with a product or brand, the more likely they are to purchase that product or brand. And therefore, to enhance emotional attachment with a destination, tourism marketers attempt to frame the location as a means of creating unforgettable experiences with friends, family, and loved ones. Instead of focusing solely on physical attributes of a destination, tourism commercials seek to show individuals creating those special emotional memories in that particular destination. Uh, These could include a romantic dinner for two on a tropical island, Or a family of four skiing down a mountain while laughing, which never happens. When marketing campaigns begin to emphasize the emotional experiences of visiting a destination, marketers expect tourism in that area to increase. That's why it shouldn't surprise us. If you're watching the TV this January and February, if you flip through the channels, we shouldn't be surprised when we're all bundled up in the cold and it's dark and it's possibly even snowing or wet, and we're isolated from all the fun things we like to do outside with our friends, all of a sudden the allure, the sweet voice in the background calling us to enjoy life on a beach on a sunny day. We sit there freezing cold, isolated from our friends, thinking, this is what I need. This is what will give me rest. Now, I like vacations. I think vacations serve a very good place for rest and refreshment and making memories with loved ones. 
But vacations and the allure that these commercials can sparkle before our eyes might actually reveal deeper issues going on in our hearts. When stress from our jobs weigh heavy on our minds, when tension between friends and church members seems unbearable for us, when drama inside our families becomes overwhelming, the subtle thought of escaping, getting away to a safe haven becomes very enticing. Joy, stability, unity, peace. We all want these things, but how do we find them? This morning, we're going to look at a passage of Scripture that confronts us in our longings for escape and our tendency to avoid hard things like hard conversations and instead offers us a better way, a path towards real comfort and peace. So if you have a copy of God's Word, open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, if you're using the chair Bibles provided, that should be on page 571. This morning we'll continue in our sermon series in Philippians as we open to the final chapter in this missionary letter between the Apostle Paul and the saints in Philippi. Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 to 9. Please follow with me as I read. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things, which you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. If you're taking notes, I have one kind of main overarching summary point and then two subpoints that I'll unpack in the sermon. Here's the main point. Joy and peace are gifts from God through Jesus Christ to his children. So do everything God says to receive and enjoy them to the fullest. Joy and peace are gifts from God through Jesus Christ to his children. 
So do everything God says to receive and enjoy them to the fullest. Now, before we look at our passage in Philippians 4, for you to make any sense of where Paul's going in this section, it's good to be reminded where true joy and peace come from and what they actually are according to God's definition. So, prior to his betrayal and crucifixion, Jesus taught his disciples that his departure from this world would certainly bring sorrow into their lives. But it would also, in God's timing, his perfect timing, be followed with the gift of experiencing inexpressible joy. Jesus also said that to wait upon his promises and to publicly identify as a Christ follower would inevitably involve hardship and tribulation in this life. But also, in time, that hardship would be accompanied by Christ's peace in their life. For example, listen to the following words from our Lord. John 14, verse 27, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. John 15, verses 9 to 11, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. John 16, verses 16 to 33. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you were asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now. But I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice. And no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me, and I have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father." 
His disciples said, ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet, I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Joy and peace. These are priceless gifts from God to be received and enjoyed to the fullest if you put your faith in Jesus Christ. If you're here today and you've been searching for vacation after vacation to try to escape some pain in your life, I want to save you a lot of money and headaches on the computer with marketers. Vacation will help you get your mind off your immediate stress and pain, but it will still be there when you return home. You see, there is no vacation. There is no journey around the world for self-discovery that can satisfy or save your soul. It wasn't designed to do that. There is no mountain. There is no beach. There is no beverage or bed that can give you heavenly peace and joy to your soul. So if that's where you're at today, you're looking for a way of escape. You're trying to mindlessly entertain yourself with technology and pleasure. I bid you, listen to God's word today. Listen to the God of peace today. Listen to Christ, whose desire is that his joy would be your joy and that your joy would be to the fullest. What if the longings this morning that you might have to escape from the pain in your life are actually being used of God to bring you closer to him. Don't ignore those groanings. Don't ignore that pain. Listen to them. That's God's invitation to say, come and taste and see that I am good. But it's also important that we define some terms I need to do that first by stating what these terms do not mean. Joy, according to Jesus and what we'll see together in Philippians 4, is not having endless glee in your life. This is not every day is a Friday. This is not the rush of endorphins 24-7 as if you got done with a marathon. In other words, having God's joy doesn't mean you're never sad or that you'll always have a problem-free life. And knowing Jesus doesn't take away tribulations from your life. In fact, Acts 14, verse 22 says quite the opposite. It is 
through many tribulations, the apostle said, we must enter the kingdom of God. But this joy, Christ's joy being filled in us is a gladness and a happy hope that we can experience as a result of being loved by God. This joy is what makes us content. As we'll learn next week, if you want to come back, we're going to be looking at contentment, very similar to this passage. It's what makes us cheerful. It's what keeps us humble. It's what makes us thankful to God for all the ways he's been good to us. How has God been good to you lately? Well, you may not recognize this, but if you are one of his sheep, he's been guiding you even if you're in a dark valley. Remember Psalm 23? Psalm 23, verse 1, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. That's why in the book of Nehemiah, when revival begins to penetrate God's exiled people, it was a revival of joy in the Lord. Nehemiah 8, which usually gets placed on a refrigerator magnet sometimes. We'll read the context It's even more exciting. Nehemiah 8, verse 10, Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. What about peace? Well, Jesus says in John 14 that there is a peace that the world can give you. The world can offer you a certain type of peace. But let me give you a rude Sunday morning awakening. It's an illusion. It's a mirage of the good life. It only brings temporary and a thin piece, like a thin piece of ice that will suddenly break when life hits you. The world's peace is really false security. In the end, it doesn't deliver on what it promises. You see, the world is passing away the Apostle John says. And if you put your hope in something that's passing away, that means your hope will one day also pass away. Your peace will pass away like holding sand in your hand on a windy day at the beach. It'll just fly right through your grip. But the peace that Christ says he will give you is the peace that surpasses all understanding. A peace that isn't determined by how good things are going for you in life. This is the peace that brings true comfort and security, both right now in November of 2020 and will stretch forever in eternity. This is the peace we have as a result of being reconciled to God. Or as Romans 5 verse 1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, when you put your faith in Christ, it's an objective reality. 
no human, no angel can erase that from God's book. You are justified. You have peace with God. But the peace that we're also going to speak about this morning is an experiential peace. It is something that you have even within your inner being that makes you filled with satisfaction and confidence in this God. This is a peace that is an inner solace of the soul, a tranquility of heart, like a gentle counselor that seizes the monsters of fear and anxiety that wants to paralyze our faith. A calmness in the midst of the storm that quietly reminds us, all is well with you, my son. All is well with you, my daughter. Because you are in Christ, you are well with me, says the Lord. You see, Christians have been singing that truth for now over 150 years. And that familiar hymn we'll even conclude this morning's sermon with. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrow like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, and he will, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ hath regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. And Lord, haste the day when the face shall be sight the clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. So to my non-Christian friend is here today, Jesus is the prince of peace. Jesus has now made a way for you and I to have peace with God. Why lay your head on your pillow another night, restless, second-guessing, wondering where you'll be after you die? Come to Christ now. Call upon him. Christ went to Calvary under the wrath of God that we might experience the peace of God. And three days later, he rose from the dead. He rose from those grave clothes. And he says, now come to me, and I will give you rest for your souls. Turn from your sins, forsake all hope in your own merits, and come to Christ by faith. This is the good news. This is what we celebrate as Christians. This is what gives us peace on our deathbed. Because in Christ, it is always well with our soul. Do you want peace with God? Do you see your need to be reconciled to this holy God who will one day judge the entire earth? Then receive his grace by faith. You see, to know that your sins are forgiven is the peace we have with God. So here in Philippians 4, Paul is now going to lay out several instructions to these believers one last time. 
because really next week's sermon is more of a kind of a recap of what's been going on in his life for the last 10 years, and he gives them an encouragement. So these are one of the last times we have like strong imperatives in this passage. And Paul's going to write Philippians 4 verses 1 to 9 with the hope that he wants the Philippians to experience the joy and peace that he had in his life. And he's going to do that through two ways. Subpoint number one, joy and peace come from being in close fellowship with other believers. That's verses one to three. Joy and peace come from being in close fellowship with other believers. Subpoint number two, joy and peace come from unceasing prayer and a God-honoring thought life. Joy and peace come from unceasing prayer and a God-honoring thought life. So start right there, point number one, joy and peace come from being in close fellowship with other believers. Again, look now in Philippians 4, verse 1. Paul begins by first expressing his joy as a result of knowing these dear believers in Philippi. He says, therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown. Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Now, as you may recall, it had been about 10 years from the time Paul first stepped foot in Philippi. The gospel was proclaimed. Lydia, her household, the Philippian jailer, began to form the Philippian Baptist Church. So, 10 years elapsed. Paul's in prison in Rome, and now he writes back to give them instructions and encouragements. But remember, Paul's been separated from them. He hasn't seen them in quite some time. Back in chapter 2, one of their own members, Epaphroditus, had traveled hundreds of miles to see Paul, to minister to Paul, and to give Paul gifts, probably food and money and other things, from the Philippian church, and really to to update the Philippian church on how Paul was doing, Paul then wrote this letter, gave it back to Epaphroditus, and Epaphroditus, Lord willing, brought it back to Philippi. That's where we think how this letter got from Paul back to Philippi. And one of the things that Paul conveys, both here in verse 1, but all throughout this letter, is that Paul genuinely loved them. He says, therefore, my brothers, who I love and long for. Have you ever heard the phrase, absence makes the heart grow fonder? To be separated from those you love? To no longer be able to touch and hear and see someone that you've made probably the most precious memories with in your life? Well, Paul's going through that. He missed them. You see, one of the most precious gifts we get to experience in this life is being in close fellowship with other followers of Jesus. I mean, we're all going to have associates at work. We're all going to have classmates in school. We're all going to have those gym buddies we give the fist pump to. We're all going to have those people that we see at our favorite restaurant and give our kind of kind hellos and goodbyes to. But for the Christian, God gives us a unique joy of being in close fellowship with other believers who've been adopted 
by the same Heavenly Father. When I'm meeting a believer for the first time, whether that's here in Fort Smith or in the airport, I kind of have it all staged exactly what I'm going to say in the first 30 seconds. If I find out they're a Christian, the first thing that's coming out of my mouth is, hey, do you belong to a local church? And they say, well, what, what, what do you mean? I go, well, this is what I mean. Are you committed to a body of believers that you know that you commit to do spiritual good to? And do does that body know who you are and are they committed to do you spiritual good? That's what I'm talking about. Well, I ask those questions because the local church is where we experience God's joy and peace with the people of God. You know, throughout a given week, all of us weather through the storms of life Monday through Saturday, and we encounter all sorts of ungodliness, all sorts of discouraging news. And after a while, most of us can come into here on church on Sundays because our chest is weighed in and our countenance is a little down because it's been a heavy and hard week. I mean, for me as a pastor, not only do I hear hard things in people's lives, I have my own burdens myself. I understand this acutely. But that's one of the reasons why the scriptures tell us to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Hebrews 10 verses 24 and 25. Because that's in the local church is where we find this safe haven. It's not a vacation. It's not a yacht. It's not some beach house on a foreign island somewhere. It's the local church where we have a safe haven as Christians to bear one another's burdens and sorrows, a safe respite to hear God's truth once again and be encouraged to trust him yet another week. Brothers and sisters, we need the local church to grow spiritually because it is spiritually dangerous to be isolated from the accountability and encouragement of a gospel-believing local church. But we also need the local church because in the local church, we make some of the deepest friendships in our life. You know, as Christians, we are alien sojourners and pilgrims. We are marching through this terrifying land to go to that celestial city. And in the church, we meet saints along the way that help us in our journey to glory. You know, it's often said by biological families, blood is thicker than water. That might be true, but the blood of Christ is thicker than the blood of your family. That's why you and I have more things eternally in common with Christians you've never met in New Zealand than unbelieving family members who live right here in Fort Smith. Read the end of Matthew chapter 12 today. Read all of Ephesians 2 today to see if you are in Christ, you are more united with other Christians eternally than even your family members who don't know the Lord in your own home. Did you also notice how Paul said he longed for them and that he called them his joy and crown? Paul uses this imagery of a crown in similar ways as he does in Philippians 3, verse 14, where he speaks about the prize that awaits us in heaven, the goal of being like Christ and with Christ forever. 
This is one of the ways that God encourages pastors like myself. I've got a few folks in here from Oak Cliff Baptist Church, brothers like Kent Swepman or Lee Kemp that I prayed for this morning. God leaves passages in here for pastors like me who genuinely love Jesus and genuinely love the flock that Jesus gave them. Because in Scripture, pastors need encouragement just like you do. And every once in a while, the Lord just sprinkles in one of these promises like here in 1 Peter 5, verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. CCBC, it has been a long and difficult year for all of us. But I do want you to know something from the horse's mouth. I don't regret moving here one bit. I've been asked by respected men in this community, why are you planting a church? Why did you decide to stay? I said, sir, with all due respect, I kept my end of the vows. I said yes to the Lord and I came. I let him determine how the cards fall. Brothers and sisters, I love you. I'm proud of you. You have persevered through some difficult terrain. And yet, though this year has had its ups and downs today, I preach here with joy to you. Because what has happened, even in a brief span of time, can only be explained by a sovereign and good God. Please pray for me to love Jesus more than I do today, to become more like Jesus than I am right now, so that when you hear me preach, if I'm here into my 50s, you will year after year after year after year, or 60s, year after year after year after year, and you begin to get nervous going, well, brother, I need to move on. The longer you sit under this ministry, my prayer is that you will hear the chief shepherd's voice louder and clearer than my own. Pray for that to be true at Chaffee Crossing Baptist Church. Paul loved them, and he certainly missed them. So he wanted to remind them that Christian fellowship, which brings great joy and peace in our lives, is something we need to protect and we need to work at. Much like a newlywed married couple figures out in about six months, any good or vibrant marriage takes work. And the same is true for believers, even in a local church. Did you notice in verse 1, Paul says all these things, I love you, I miss you, you're my brother. He's giving him a big old bear hug, and then he pulls back and he says, listen to me, Philippians, stand firm, remain steadfast in the Lord. That's why in verses 2 to 3, Paul then begins to share what Epaphroditus obviously had to tell him, that two women in the church were currently at odds with one another, and their close fellowship was being threatened. Look at verses 2 and 3. He says, I entreat Euodia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree. That, that trans, your translation might say to live in harmony with, or to be of the same mind. It's, it's what we talked about weeks ago in Philippians 2.2. 2 where Paul says, be of the same mind 
with one another, having the same goal and heart, a love for Christ and his gospel. He says, be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women. That, that word is translated, seize them and bring them together. In other words, grab their hands. It's time for these two women to face the facts that unity is being threatened and they need to work through these differences. He says, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, here's what's crazy. Here's what's odd. In virtually every letter of the New Testament, at least most that I've looked in, every time Paul brings up a division or a disagreement, he tells us what it is, with the exception of here. He doesn't mention anything about doctrine. He hammered that out in chapter 3 with the Judaizers. He doesn't even question their salvation. He doesn't think they're wolves in sheep's clothing. He's not calling them unrepentant sinners who need to be excommunicated from the body. In fact, it's actually the total opposite. These two women, Euodia and Syntyche, were widely known by the church for their hard work in public ministry alongside Paul. Paul says that these women had labored side by side with him. They weren't some kind of inferior JV to Paul. They worked long hours in ministry, just like Paul. They got down in the trenches of gospel ministry, just like Paul. And Paul counted them, along with other members of this church, like Clement, as fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Brothers and sisters, if you are seeking to invest in others to do them spiritual good, you are fellow workers with me. I count you as a great joy and need in my life to work together for gospel good. Brothers and sisters, if our church or any local church for that matter is ever going to experience the peace and joy that God has for us in authentic Christian fellowship, we have to learn how to work through disagreements and learn what hills are worth dying on. In other words, Christians can disagree over a bunch of things and still genuinely love each other. That means as Christians, we also have to learn how to address disagreements with love and grace, not malice or emotional manipulation. Emotional blackmail is never a mark of godliness. We have to remember that if a person is trusting Christ, they are your brother or sister in the Lord. No matter how heated or passionate you are, you have to remember that. Our Heavenly Father loves them in the same way He loves you. Our God and Father is listening to how you speak to another Christian who's a son or daughter of His. That includes text messages. That includes letters. That includes emails as well. Also remember, regardless if someone is a Christian or a pagan, that person is still made in the image of God. That means your disagreement, whatever it is, still needs to be expressed with kindness and respect. 
we should never speak to another human being as if they were less than a human or act as if we stand over them self-righteously in the place of God. Parents, that's a good reminder for us this morning. When you are disciplining your son or your daughter, the scriptures would teach that we should be diligent and firm, but never harsh with our children. God holds us who are in authority to a higher standard. So I'm speaking to you as a broken, convicted man of myself. We should turn moments of anger and foolishness with our children into moments of ministry and love with our children. Husbands, that also means that we should never use our authority to intimidate our wives. Even if our wives disagree with us, undermine us, or sin against us, we never lead our wives with fear or manipulation, but by sacrifice, selflessness, patience, and a genuine concern for their well-being. That is how Christ has loved us. Ephesians 5 says, says, therefore, love your wives in the same manner. Brothers, husbands, we should show the same tenderness and care with our words to our brides, even when we have disagreements with them. And as Christians, we also need to share our disagreements using discernment, thinking through our disagreements with the Bible's priorities and not merely our own agenda or personal feelings. Here's how I'll illustrate this this morning. Imagine staring at a traffic light, red, yellow, and green. Red light is a major disagreement. This is the level of doctrinal heresy or unrepentant sin. This is the level of denying the Trinity, the deity of Christ, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, or the very gospel itself. This could also include a Christian that is living in open, unrepentant sin, or at least a professing Christian, and one that needs to be corrected. One example in Scripture that we can see this clearly is where Paul confronted the apostle Peter. Peter had fallen into hypocrisy and led others into hypocrisy. In Galatians 2, verses 11 to 14, we read, But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Listen, if you're working in some type of business or leadership team out in the community, and there are clearly unethical things going on behind closed doors, things you have knowledge of, sin that is being affirmed and endorsed, this might be a situation where you should confront error with those in leadership or simply leave the organization altogether 
because you don't want to be seen as approving that evil. The red light here might be a hill worth dying on, even in your job. And if you're in a situation like that in your own career, pray for God to give you courage to do what is right in the eyes of the Lord. This red light category certainly has implications for our lives together as a local church. Jesus tells us in Matthew 18 that when a professing believer lives in open, unrepentant sin with no sign of obeying Jesus, over-loving their sin, that church is called to carry out loving church discipline. Listen, the red light category for disagreements is often super difficult and very messy. But if it's important to God, it should be important to us. The second light, second category of disagreements amongst believers is that yellow light. I would give this a very bland name, medium disagreement. This is on one level of personal convictions that affects the chemistry between those you work with or serve with. It's where two or more good-intentioned people simply disagree about how things should be done and what the overall ethos of an organization like a church should be like. Uh, This is very common in churches where believers, even serving on the same staff, aren't necessarily in sin, but they hold to legitimately different convictions that cause friction. And given enough time, if someone doesn't change their conviction or become flexible, the ability to work together effectively over the long haul becomes seemingly impossible. A classic example of this is from Acts 15. Acts 15, verses 36 to 41, which occurred right before, basically, Paul gets to Philippi. We read this. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city, where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with him John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them and Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And when he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. In this medium or yellow category, it's not necessarily sin or righteousness that's at stake, but it's a philosophy of how things should be done. Maybe even the chemistry not working out between one or more people. Uh, This is often the category that causes people to leave a local church and to go to another church that more closely aligns with their understanding and philosophy of ministry. And then lastly, green, minor disagreements. Uh, This is where most of us live week to week in our lives. Your husband prefers taking the trash out when it's packed to the brim, but you prefer taking it out when it's three-fourths full. Your sister prefers the windows up riding to school in the morning while you prefer the windows down. But it can also be more personal when you deal with opposite personality types as well. The introvert and extrovert driving one another crazy about what to do on a Friday night. The manager with perfectionistic tendencies who is super organized, trying to work under a boss who is more 
laid back, takes things as they come. The quiet, critical thinker paired up with the more emotional and sensitive temperament. Whether it's people that annoy you and drain you emotionally or people that come off a little nosy and say more than they should. We all have to learn how to bear with one another and with our rough edges of our personalities. I have found this category helpful when we read the church covenant together. Tonight, if you come back to partake of the Lord's Supper, we're going to recite the church covenant together. It's a fresh reminder that we can actually love each other even in the midst of these minor differences. I think one helpful text, whatever you're in, whatever kind of disagreement you may be into in your life, a text that I go to time and time is Romans 12, verses 16 to 18. Paul says, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, notice this phrase in light of our passage. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Now, I just ranted for 20 minutes on disagreements because I know you've had them just this week. And I know you have disagreements like I have, even with those who might not be in this building. This is something to return back to time and time again because here in Ephesians 4, we're not even told what the disagreement was between Euodia and Syntyche. We don't know if it was necessarily a yellow or a green light, but whatever the issue was, Paul said this was threatening unity in the church. And so what does Paul do? He says in verse 3, he pleads for a trusted believer to act as a mediator between them to help them. You know, sometimes in marriage, sometimes in church, sometimes at work, and even among friends, we can't resolve a disagreement on our own, can we? But you know what? The one thing you don't need to do is sweep it under the rug. It only is going to get worse. Brothers and sisters, Paul models for us, even before the Philippian church, he says, help these women. Seize these women. Get them in the same room to look at each other. Cut the ice and help them work through their disagreement. You might need a counselor through some marriage struggles you're going through. Uh, you might need to seek a pastor's guidance with a job conflict. Uh, you might need, with your prayer group, pray about a struggle with a mom or dad that's coming to visit you for the holidays. This is an opportunity to help one another reason and work through disagreements. Brothers and sisters, regardless of what your disagreement is, do not be conflict avoidant at all cost. This is the part where the sword is going to come in. To be conflict avoidant at all cost is a sign of being a coward, not a sign of being Christ-like. To be conflict avoidant at all cost is a sign of being a coward, not a sign of being Christ-like. You might say, Brother Blake, isn't it peacemakers that are blessed? Peacemakers is what we should be? Yes. 
That's what characterizes the children of God. Peacemakers. A peacemaker really is someone who avoids foolish debates that tend to breed further anger and quarreling. But a peacemaker is not someone who avoids hard but necessary conversations that can bring about repentance, healing, and reconciliation. So, what conversation are you avoiding that you know is necessary to have? What person does the Lord keep bringing up in your mind when you pass by their house, when you're flipping through your phone, that you need to pray for courage and wisdom to pursue some form of resolve before your anger turns into bitterness. Whatever conversation that is, whatever person the Lord brings up, I want to encourage you to walk in that light. Paul did that for the Philippians. He saw that their joy and peace could be quenched and grieved if they don't pursue through this. And so he tells them, keep this close relationship with one another protected. Work hard to preserve unity in the church even by working through disagreements, not simply sweeping them under the rug. Subpoint number two, joy and peace come from unceasing prayer and a God-honoring thought life. He goes from close fellowship to our prayer and thought life. He says in verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is commendable, I'm sorry, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is anything excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Would you consider yourself a worry wart? When you're pushed outside of your comfort zone or a deadline gets pushed forward, do you find yourself thinking of the worst possible scenario? Keeps you up at night, makes you sweat, your heart beat faster. I know from my own life, I've had to work through a lot of struggles with anxiety. Public speaking, meeting new people, changing schools or churches, having difficult conversations with church members, co-workers, and even family members, financial stress, and the uncertainty of what my vocation in the future would look like, and I could go on and on and on. Uh, To be very transparent with you, anxiety has gotten so difficult in my life a handful of times that I have ended up in the emergency room and having an EKG up to my chest 
19 years old, I was stressed out of my mind trying to make the football team separated from my parents who were going through some difficult marriage issues with my brother who got in some trouble, and I ended up in the hospital because of anxiety. Just a few years ago, three years ago, I was 32 years old, and I was stressed out because of a back injury. And I spent a Saturday night in the hospital. I've spent countless hours with men and women of all ages who struggle with lesser and greater degrees of anxiety for all different reasons. So if you're here today and you experience higher levels of anxiety on a regular basis, I sympathize with you. And I don't want you to experience that anymore by yourself. I also want to make mention of this. If you're taking medication for anxiety or you're taking medication that has side effects that increases anxiety, please don't let a religious stigma condemn you. Just be honest with your doctor. Talk to him or her about the medication and whether or not it's helping or hurting you. Share your anxieties with someone you trust on a regular basis basis. Don't wait till it gets too difficult. Cut it off when the anxieties are begin to brew. You see, brothers and sisters, when we open up our anxiety to the people of God, God sends good people who give good words of advice. Proverbs 12 verse 25 says, anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. But here in Philippians 4 verses 4 to 9, Paul just gives us the basic heart posture, right? For all of us, for whatever temptation we might have towards anxiety. And he even presses us because at the root of anxiety could be unbelief. It could be doubt in who God is. He says right there in verse 4, rejoice in who God is for you in Christ, and do this always. Verse 5, remember that God is with you and for you, so remain calm and confident. Verse 6, rely on God with your anxiety through unceasing prayer. Verse 8, reflect with meditations that honor God and build you up spiritually. Gunner, you might like this as an A.W. Pink fan. A.W. Pink once summarized, the best antidote for anxiety is frequent meditation upon God's goodness, power, and sufficiency. Nothing is too big and nothing is too little to spread before and cast upon the Lord. Listen, if you're here today and you're experiencing anxiety because of a concerning health challenge, I want to encourage you today. For every thought that brings you anxiety, when the doctor's visit reminder pops up on your phone, when you're in the car on the way to the hospital, when the doctor is turning that door handle, when you get the medical exam in your lap, when you get the results two weeks later, for every thought that comes penetrating your head with fear and anxiety, take 10 thoughts that is true about God. Every time it begins to enter into your heart, don't deny it, don't hide it. Say, hey, listen, this is killing me. I can't sleep. My body is stressed out. 
Open it up to God. Open it up to his people. There is no anxiety that's bigger than our God of comfort. And when fear and anxiety comes knocking on your heart, even about your sin, being caught, being condemned, no one else struggles with this sin, and you let your mind go to the nth degree about the assurance of your salvation, you doubt it basically every other week. Robert Murray Machane, one of my heroes in the faith, he says, for every one look at your sins, take 10 looks at Christ. At CCBC, that's why every Sunday we try to do three things as best as we can. We sing God's word. We pray God's word. And we hear God's word read and proclaimed. You take that liturgy, take that order of service this week, and try to trace what we are doing every week. We are trying to live out Philippians 4. We're praying together so anxiety doesn't paralyze us. We sing together so we get outside of our heads and sing what's true about God. All those things in Philippians 4, verse 8. But beloved, did you notice at the beginning and the end of every service, and even right now you've been graciously for the last 45 minutes or maybe 50, you've been quiet, you've been gracious, but you've been listening. When we sit under the word, we listen to what God wants to reveal to us. In silence, God exposes our hearts to us. In prayer, we bear our hearts to God. In silence, God exposes our hearts to us. But in prayer, we bear our hearts to God. So why do we work hard at protecting Christian unity? Why do we pray when our hearts are weighed down with anxiety? Look at verses 7 and 9. Look with me as we close. Verse 7, and the, say it together, the what? Peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Look at verse 9. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of what? Peace will be with you. When peace, like a river, attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I pray that in silence this morning, You have revealed our hearts to us on where we need to identify areas of bitterness, areas of avoiding conflict at all cost, cowardice, and give us, Lord, courage to pursue those relationships in love, trusting you with the outcome. 
Father, we also want to pray for those of us who battle with anxiety on a regular basis. Lord, we pray they would not be condemned by this passage, but helped. I pray that we would open up our lives, open up our hearts to others so that they might pray and speak good words to us. And Lord, I pray as we close now that we would sing with gusto and confidence that in Christ it is well with our soul. It's in his name we pray. Amen.